0: Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's $1 US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. Welcome to Book Shambles and a quick announcement before we get started. We will
1: be recording four episodes of Book Shambles live next year at the Royal Albert Hall. We'll be there as part of their Festival of Science and we'll be doing four episodes with our top science and science fiction writers. Two nights, June 4 and June eleven. We'll be recording two episodes each night and they will be normal episodes. So, Robin and Josie with one guest for an hour, then we'll have an interval and then we'll be doing uh, the second episode. Tickets are just £16.50 for each night. So, that means you get to see two episodes. And if you go to the Cosmic Shambles website now, you'll find all the links to go to the Royal Albert Hall website to get tickets. And now on to this week's episode with our guest Kim Scott, who, quick side note, was actually one of my lecturers uh, at university back in Australia many, many, many years ago who has since gone on to become uh, a dual Miles Franklin Award winner and one of Australia's most celebrated writers. So clearly uh, it was my influence. Or else, uh, once he was rid of the distraction of uh, people like me, he could actually go on and become a
0: brilliant writer. It's one of those. (music) Um, we're joined by uh, the author and also you're a professor of creative writing as well is it uh Kim? yep yep um so we'll start off with just uh a bit of background well well i actually i'm going to ask something simple very simple beginning the first question which is um at what point did you think right i really i have to write because i presume you have you feel mm. uh that it's we've talked about it before in terms of stand-up in terms of performance and creativity there are some people you kind of read their work and you think you kind of do it but I don't know if it's a necessity and other people you read their work and you think this is a necessary part of their existence
2: Mm, I don't know if I've even got that uh, drive that I have to Um, when I decided I should get serious about attempting to write was when I was teaching adolescents, and I was an English teacher and it was feeble as it may sound, it was sort of a moral thing um, and I noticed that the uh, people teaching welding and carpentry and whatnot were fixing their cars and building houses and what was the English teacher doing? Telling people about how to read and how to write and I thought I should work out how to um, do it properly, get published. And I'd, I'd previously been someone who dabbles in exercise books and draws as much as I was writing, I think. Though I had studied um, literature in its death throes. <laughs> it was literary theory in those days. Um, so somewhere around there I was getting serious and then I realised that working out stories for me was a way of fretting and thinking things through um, little ob- uh, gnawing obsessions, really, and so that's yes that's where it's got self motivated as much as anything, I think
3: so you sort of discovered it as a way of interpreting and understanding your life, and then you were like, right, oh, I need this now,
2: yeah not, uh, my life, and also uh, alternative um, alternative ways of articulating things yep. Spe- yeah, and and yeah yeah who who we are and what does it mean yeah grand grand things oh it's embarrassing to even say it
0: well it's that, that, that there's a bit where you create and then the moment you've stopped creating it and it's become something that's delivered something that's in bookshops I know, that is it's almost oh, rather embarrassing what i've said now that when it's in the head and when it's just on the page in front of you it's fine and then because i've found that quite often interviewing people who've done incredible work They've then become quite embarrassed about the fact. Oh, yeah, I, I made this thing. I did this thing. And
2: then yeah, yeah. I look in my case. It's the it's the fear that I might be embarrassed, and I'm so awkward about it that I don't want to look at it again too closely, because it might confirm the fact that yes, I am embarrassed. Um, so it's yeah, it's fear. <laughs> it's fear of being embarrassed, and I'll be found out. Oh, like imposter syndrome. Or like that, um, yeah, well, something like that. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't write. I don't know why. God, I wish I hadn't started this, this little bit of the conversation. <laughs> done this. This. It's it's like, <laughs> like,
3: let's delve right into <laughs> this. Let's, <pick> this <laughs> yeah. let's yeah. start again.
2: <laughs> Welcome to the former author. Kim <laughs> um, the, oh, oh, God. <laughs> no. Where are we? Experience
0: of, of I, I, I won't, but I've, I've that where you start to, you have to do a public reading. And as you read it, you stop yourself and go, sorry, by the way, that's a terrible sentence. And you get your pen out <laughs> well, and you stop. No Because that, that's the difference, I suppose. The, the advantage of, of stand-up is it's happening each night. And you have this control over the sentence you might still do awful sentences there might be terrible sentences that that uh, you you deliver to an audience but you'll be able to change that tomorrow but you, that moment that you, you it, it's been del- you, you go oh i want to i want it to get like like that bjork video where there's a book that keeps changing you, you kind <laughs> of want to or in a yeah, yeah. K. dick story you want to be able to go oh i've changed the book and then everyone puts out that oh Oh, Kim must have changed the book, because
3: these sentences are different now in my (laughs) copy. you could do that with Kindles now. You could just release updates.
2: Oh, really? Oh, that's very useful to know.
3: I I don't think you can, but you could.
0: Can can you? You could just say... I I don't think people do it. But I would love that idea of this okay. kind of, you know, that has a, a bit of a David Cronenberg kind mm. of fleshy, organic quality to it, doesn't I've, it?
2: The, the I've book. done it with a short story. I've done it with a short story that was about to be published, and then I uh, didn't let on that I was changing it, but made adjustments as I was reading it and penciled them in. Huh. But I would never say, I would never confess to that. When not when you're psyched up and you're doing the actual reading. <laughs> you <wouldn't laughs> dare like, show that diffidence. This is the best bit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>
3: um, what do you have uh, now? Uh, what fiction now do you most enjoy teaching uh, to students? What kind of things do you most enjoy recommending and picking apart?
2: Up up? Uh, look, I'd, at the moment, I'm not teaching, so that doesn't come into the equation. Oh, I'm um, sorry. We're back to the introduction again. Please <laughs> yeah, yeah. welcome the former yeah. author
0: and former creative writer. <laughs> this is a disaster. Uh, what yes. have you most
2: enjoyed teaching? Um, uh, what have I most enjoyed teaching? Probably things that I enjoy mostly is... Uh, I, think, I think teaching them helps me enjoy them. So as far back as when I was a secondary teacher, um, the love... What is it? The, the Martin Gurr, there's something... I can't even remember the titles now. Educating Rita was a play that we did. I learned about Shakespeare through teaching it. so Macbeth. I remember working out what that was about. Such a poorly educated um, English teacher I was. Uh, Tira Lira by the River, a novel by Jessica Anderson. It was not something I would have read if I wasn't teaching it and I got to delight in that sort of thing. And when I have been teaching, I like to offer... Examples of uh, various sorts of examples, sometimes the sensuality of some sort of writing, you know, where you can tell the author's uh, immersed in the pleasures of the language. Uh, in other instances, it's other things, again, you know, sort of eclectic in that way.
0: So Because I think there's a problem sometimes where people will read what they think they're going to like. And um, what you're saying, yeah, know, that bit of wooing someone to go, I know this, looking at the back blurb and looking at everything about this book, you don't think you're Because we all have our favourite books and you go, yep. please read this. This yep. book will re- really. So that experience, are there the certain sp- specific books where you think, wow, when I, even when I first read that? I didn't really get it, and I didn't really like it. And oh. then I went back and I took time on it. And, and that's, you know, reading that moment where you know you've got the time and you start to analyse it, and slowly that book opens up in front of you.
2: I think many uh, many of my favourite books have been like that. I think uh, The Remains of, of the Day, is it, Ishiguru. I remember having difficulty reading that. And if you know the book, because of the narrators so and bound and near the end you only realise the extent well I only realise the extent of how inhibited he is when you realise he's crying and someone's offering him a handkerchief and he's telling the story I thought that was a lovely sort of moment Uh, The Accidental Tourist is another one like that it's not I think my wife recommended that to me that's uh, one of my favourite books though I wouldn't have read it initially and I've enjoyed going back to that not so much to analyze it to tell you the truth but just to immerse myself deeper in the in the you know the pleasure of um, the literary experience if i can put it like that
0: who's I, i've never read that but i know that was there was a film with william hurt they they adapted it
2: oh, i didn't I know can't
0: that i remember how, what the actual tourist can you
2: Anne tyler right i think and it's he's a he's a, a local uh, writer um writes uh, travel stuff but he doesn't like travelling so it's a lot about the comforts of home um, yeah and so it's got that it, it models some of his own writing so again it's probably that unreliable narration something in there where you are reading it and working out more about the narrator than, than what he himself knows and it grows from that so that's that connects it to the Ishiguru novel I suppose Um yeah, and they're 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 protagonists that are not immediately attractive, but learning more about them around the edges of themselves. And the book is what I like. So I tend to read books that people recommend to me, and um, prize winners because you think a lot of a lot of people have judged that as worthwhile, yeah. and that might narrow it down other than just uh, the marketing sort of thing.
0: What do you think, when you've, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, you, you, you've, you've won major literary prizes? Again, when you're talking about the embarrassment of a work, and Josie was suggesting, you know, that little bit of many people have the kind of, you know, just that, that sense of I'm about to be found out. Is there, <laughs> it, it, it does that feel in, in one way like, oh, it's really nice to win a prize, but in another way, this gets me even closer to being found <laughs> out. The, the, you know, the dog's getting really close to pulling back the curtain now.
2: No, no, not at those moments, no. At those moments, it's very gratifying. Um, but kind of unbelievable so it 's you know it 's self esteem or confidence or something like that and and, and I think that's that 's what a lot of writing 's about it 's about making these sort of humble offerings you offer you offer it 's like a gift <laughs> you offer something to people, and it 's always really uh, it 's a very privileged thing to it being a, being a writer as Several hours you spend uh, quite intimately with someone, one on one, and taking them in, often into some sort of interior world or some sort of alter- slightly alternative way of looking at things, and that's that's a that's, that's a rare privilege. And it ta- obviously, it's it's a risk. You know, you think I'm just going to show that I don't know what I'm doing, but if you've managed to. Uh, Nabokov says, enchant someone. That's, that's uh, r- wonderfully gratifying. So, some of those prizes I think of in terms of they are, you know, people that hopefully know books uh, reassuring one saying, yes, you've done that. You've, you've, thank you, really. Anyone that buys books or reads a book, is, uh, hopefully, is something of that in their response.
0: Do you remember the first book that you responded to? You know, that that, that mm. first moment of real excitement when you when you're reading because that can be across so many different ages. Because some authors mm. I've spoken to just said I didn't read anything till com- uh, apart from comics till I was about fifteen or so, and then suddenly I found this book. And other people, it seems, started at a very early age.
2: I devoured comics. Also, that was the large, hugely largest part of my reading as a kid. But, yes, I do vividly remember the first book I read. I was probably too young to read it, Tom Sawyer. I was about seven, I think. Mm. So I, would, I wasn't up to reading it. But my father's name was Tom, and his father, and they were estranged, had sent me a copy of Tom Sawyer, and it begins something like "Tom, Tom, where is that infernal boy?" or something, and I thought, oh, 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 you know, Granddad has sent me this book. Oh, you've never sent me anything before, uh, and Tom—that's you know—that's—I remember thinking this is a book about my dad. <laughs> uh, so I was, I was, uh, I was right in there um, without, you know, I. I th- Learned a fair bit about reading, I think, just by sticking with that book. Um, I remember the terror of uh, them being trapped in the cave, and that they were perhaps a little harsh on Injun Joe. Um, the, you know the way he was portrayed. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that. Uh, that's that's a, a strong memory, and I'm I'm reading it again at the moment, which is. Um, a disappointing experience to <laughs> oh. tell you the truth. <laughs> Except remembering the younger. I like reading, rereading books to remember the younger reader that, that one was and recognise things you picked up on and didn't. Well, that's really. also
3: interesting as well because it's, it, it stops being about the book and starts being about your relation with that book yeah, over yeah, long periods of time.
2: Yeah, and how you've changed and what you knew then and what you didn't and that sort of thing
0: what surprised you most going back to it uh, when you because you i mean your face really did that that level you, it's not really when you said disappointment there was real i shouldn't uh, have gone back maybe
2: oh <laughs> uh, well it's yeah no it's in it's in that yarn spinning um sort of mode or style um yeah, that's just so it's it's unfair to be too critical of books, but that's that's sort of what disappointed me. It's uh it's yarn spinning, it's a um Hail Fellow well met sort of style. It's not it's not um intriguing or it doesn't lure you in in any of those sort of cunning ways. It's on the surface. But that's very, very unfair to Mark Twain, to speak <laughs> like that from this you know, enormously privileged vantage point. Um, but that would have made it easier to read at the time, of course, as well.
0: What about you? You, you mentioned gnawing obsessions when you started writing. So what were those gnawing obsessions that you, you found when you started to...
2: Oh, I don't think there's any surprise in them, really. Once you start spending time with the page and invent, you know, dredging up uh, your own life and characters from within you, and this is why I embarrassed myself a little moment ago getting speaking about grand themes, but it's it's pretty much um, this is Aboriginal country that we live on here, um, and what does it mean to be descended from those people that first created human society Mm. in this corner of the most ancient continent on the planet and one of the longest continuing civilizations and coming to terms with the fact, the fundamentals of our shared history here uh, stolen country within 50 years or so there's something like 10% of the original population surviving then there's an apartheid like regime for most of the 20th century And so, who am I coming out of that uh, that family and personal history? And my grandparents were living in a little town on the edge of a massacre country, taboo country. Aboriginal grandparents. Um, So, just that that you know, you've, you've just got to get close to that sort of material and see the various ways of articulating that in the State Archives, for instance, going in there, finding the language of our shared history. And uh, there's all... You feel differently, and I want to put different words to that experience, not only try and uh, match it up with something that's uh, more like the truth, from a felt truth, but also to um, redress certain things in there, particularly when you see such huge uh, arrogance and rationalisation of what has occurred. Um, So that's – and now a lot of my work coming out of that is uh, to do with um, Noongar or Indigenous language recovery uh, from that really damaged sort of position. Um, And because I studied literature, I make – Parallels sometimes to try and communicate this to a wider audience than, say, the Noongar community. And the importance of, uh, you know, the Renaissance in Europe dredging up broken statues and fragments of language. Well, here in this part of the world, there's landscape instead of statues that you can uh, understand the contours of and match. A language and creation stories to that landscape as there is in other places in the world of course but these seem really neglected and in my own formal and informal education this is this heritage has not been allowed to be nurtured and nourished so uh, I think my novels sort of explore that sort of terrain and trying to do it in a way that's uh, appropriate. Partly that's through making it um, justly complex for a, for a wider audience than a Noongar community. And then one also realises, this is dreadfully serious, so thanks for being patient with me, my dears. <laughs> you realise that uh, uh, because of the damage of and the legacy of oppression, that I have very, f- in a literary sense, I have very few Nunga readers, and the the novel works as a sort of cultural artefact for those readers and that community, and they're supportive of it. But how different it is when you're working with something like language recovery or revitalization and bringing. Uh, creation stories, say from the archives or from linguists or sometimes older people, who left them with me back to extended family who haven't heard those stories because of the nature of our history and in a home community of descendants, people descended from those original storytellers, fanning the embers of those stories back to life and in their landscape and reuniting stories, creation stories with their landscape, so boulders that represent dogs in a particular creation story rolling down a hillside into the sea, with a child of the person, the informant that left that story in the archives with you, you know, eight or ten people with the story and uh, running it through our bodies. You know, we make ourselves instruments, the spirit that 's in this story in that particular place, as a literary person that 's me that's it um, yeah, 's that's, that's hard to get to those moments but that 's really wonderful um, and it's it 's a literary endeavor it 's the same as writing novels and reading but it 's got it 's grounded uh, so much more fundamentally and sometimes i 'm reminded of t s Eliot's the wasteland. You know, toward the end, he, he uses uh, Sanskrit, I think yeah. it is, to talk about healing that that Fisher King and the broken, you know, the civilization. What is it? Pound talks about a bitch gone in the teeth or something like that. You know, but but particularly the psyche. And I think uh, that intrigues me in an Australian context. You know, it's it's sort of healing for me in a home community some of this uh, liter- literary activity like that, but it's probably I've spoken uh, previously of the possibility of anchoring a shimmering nation state to its continent. You know, that's that's Australian nation state via many many diverse indigenous roots, and I see I see a possibility in that. There's, there's a whole lot of political uh, negotiation and protocol stuff to get through. But that's how it feels when we're um, doing that language sort of work. And now I try and get that, f- try and form a relationship, as I did with the last novel, between that and the the novels, so you can use the achievement, if it occurs, with the novel to that Circle of readers wide out there, to shine a light on this other work and try and garner some momentum um, for that. there was a long rave and a no, ramble there n-
3: not at all no, it's, it's very it's patient listeners, but also it feels like it feels like a very it feels like a massive undertaking. It feels like a big yes. responsibility. For well, it's you. A, it's
2: stupid. Yeah, it's uh, an act of folly. No,
3: it's incredible. But I, w- I wanted to ask: like, do you feel like you're part of a creative community that uh, you know s- seeks to do similar things, or do you feel like you're somebody striking out quite in quite a solitary way?
2: Ah, uh, yeah. No, it is. Uh, uh, yeah, one does feel a little isolated at times. Um, but it's v- it's very real. It's very real, and it's honest and. Uh, The 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 and Noongar Language and Stories Project, there's a website associated with it. The um, first time we had a particular archive set at one stage and that started this project. And we pulled together about 50 or 60 people uh, led by 15 or 20 children of informants from 1930 to a particular linguist. And within about 10 minutes of calling, you know, starting to talk, formally to that mob everyone was crying, everyone in the room was crying and it was something to do people have said, I remember someone saying hey, we never get together like this anymore except at funerals, uh-huh. which is a, an empirical reality for many indigenous communities in Australia to do with the rate of death plus there's a funerals to go to every week for many people more than that um, and but we were doing something like that We were, we were gathering together we're gathering around uh, these stories that had almost died some of them and this her- our heritage which sings of so much potential that to my mind helps an oppressed community so we're gathering together around the stories told by these people that are long gone on just scraps of paper uh, and an endangered language And so it was, yeah, we were bringing things back to life. You know, it's about bringing things back to life. I think we all, we must have sensed um, something of that for all those tears to be happening. And we do that with, let's segued into working with old um, songs, uh, songs in Noongar language as well. And I think that's even better because you can uh, memorise them and it's it's a bit twee, but I, I and I've already said it. But the idea of making yourself an instrument and you reshape yourself from the inside out in learning to make some of these sounds, it's um, yeah, and you're doing that collectively. Yeah, it's it's wonderful, and it is, and I think it's very much to do with the a storytelling structure of listeners and tellers um, coming together and collaborating, and that's 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 what makes stories come alive, that sort of exchange, and breath. Well, these stories in particular, they need breath. And we, in some ways we, we weaken them again by writing them down. So we publish some of these things as books, again because it's a significant sort of cultural artefact and it means something to that home community to have... There we are. There's an expression of who we are, those books. But you know, the, the whole business of print is so different to... Um, an oral tradition, if it's still a tradition, it's still a tradition we have. And so songs do that so much um, stronger. And you can carry them around and memorise them.
3: When. Sto- oh. No, no, you go. No, because I've done that to you about three times. I don't mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> you won't. When, when stories like that are written down, how do you find they relate in terms of genre and structure? to, uh, like, other cultural storytelling. Like, what, yeah. what I'm thinking of is, is sort of, you know, d- do they follow similar story structures or are the story structures quite different? Uh,
2: no, they don't, but it might be the fragmented way in which we've received them, some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So some, I, I did a, I collaborate on a book with a woman, Hazel Brown, Kay Young, Hazel, who's very important in this particular project. In mm-hmm. fact... It followed on from doing the book with her, and she had set pieces that she'd deliver anecdotes and a repertoire of stories she'd offer, which are shaped, you know, to suit the time. And you can have a yarn and and that you impress someone with them. Some of this stuff in language it's sort of part of the creation stories, particularly the part of song cycles. So they, their structure doesn't we have to impose and make some quite large decisions wow. in terms of how to structure them to fit within 16-page sort of picture book format. We use picture books because you can bring more people to the cusp, you know, to the interface of, of cultural interface, really. Um, So we have to impose some sort of structure on them. And there's, there's great dangers, you know, the um, why the crow is black, sort of just so sort of stories that... That, that's a received sort of uh, structure for some of these stories I think that's dangerous because they, they they're not like that and you're in the publication you're, you're tempted into those modes of conveying them so there's a danger in that um, we also with the project where well, there's one lovely story of a Noongar man leaping into a whale and making it carry him along the south coast of Western Australia and he strands it near what's now the town of Albany. So this is where all my writing occurs. Really interesting For me, a really interesting story because of the choice. It's not like Jonah and the whale. He chooses to be in there. When he ent- he dives into its spout and he's in the, the whale's belly and it's like a cave in there and the heart is like a fire that he uh, stabs and Stokes, so it's quite an aggressive, not this silly harmony with nature, naive harmony with nature sort of story, but he works with the whale, and a story his father's told of him of just this sort of thing happening, and he sings a song to make it take him along. And when he gets there, he comes comes out of the strands the whale, comes out, there's two women on the beach, he's telling them what a deadly man he is that he's done this. And there's a big party because a stranded whale would be a chance for festivities and feasting, in classical Nungar times. And he's everyone singing the song and story of this fella, and that's how so we structured the story like that. But a number of the publishers who rejected um, some of these stories early on would say, "What happened to the whale? Uh, because we had they were eating the whale, so we had to modify that." Because they, they get marketed as children's books, even though they're not because of the picture book format. Um, yeah, we had to we had to change those sort of things. So those, the other... But they're archetypal stories, I think one could argue, many yeah. of these. So they have something, something deep in the psyche about them. And that's one of the things that makes them, in my humble opinion so very useful and important to a their contemporary Indigenous community. Because one of the – there's structural motifs, if that's, that's the correct expression, to do with protagonists who have a story arc of leaving home. Now, this is a global yarn, I think. Leaving their home – Um, challenges, contests of different sorts, finding their talent in that process and themselves and then orbiting back to a home community enriched and better able to contribute to their home and welcomed back because of their story as much as anything.
3: Yeah.
0: Can I, just just, I know we've really nearly run out of time but, really the, um, but on the political side of it, when you talk about anchoring the nation state to the continent it's on and I'm thinking about, we had Tom Ballard on, the, I don't know if you know, comedian yeah. Tom Ballard and we don't know, we didn't see this but his current show is about doing a reality TV programme in which uh, a selection of people went off uh, to Aboriginal land and amongst those I oh. believe was a guy from One Nation Yeah. and Tom was talking about the, the problems of communicating with the guy from from one nation and i just wondered in terms of your work and in terms of the storytelling and in terms of what is now you know getting a, a wider public this what it, the battle <laughs> to anchor that nation state to the, the continent yeah 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 and i wonder what politically how how potent you found it and how difficult you found it
2: uh, i think it's enormously i uh, look i uh, personally and working in this small way I feel that it happens. Not enough to achieve some of those uh, ends that uh, more overt political activity would want to and needs to. It's enormously difficult, um, and it may not even be the best thing in the life. The psyche, and this is the grand, pompous stuff again, Australian psyche, the nation state sort of needs that, uh, that bonding, I would think some way of you know, an Indigenous identity being in the, the, the psyche of the nation-state. And for most of our history, it's been rejected and denigrated, destroyed, or attempts at that. In the last couple of decades, we've moved to something like celebration. But if you're not careful, it becomes serious appropriation of of elements of Indigenous culture... For the benefit of the nation state and its pathological uh, crisis, so yes, yeah, so to handle all that is 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 very difficult um, and i don 't know how to do it though i 've been involved in some of those activities, but um, storying and and i think i 'm quite deft um, I try to be anyway with storings is a negotiation on itself, in itself. So, with that language project, which is it's only a part of uh, what I do, I think, though it's at the core of what I do. It's some of what I'm talking about is a drip is is returning and consolidating this material in its home community that's been dispossessed to some extent of this, and pulling the different fragments of that community together and binding them through this. Uh, consolidated heritage and then some sort of drip feed out to ever widening circles that sort of widen and and come back in again and members of that community getting the buzz of being empowered through sharing this heritage but not giving it all away so one it, there's just criticism that comes of you giving that heritage away Uh, in some circumstances similar to this. So there's a balancing act between enticing people to appreciate what's here and the power of what's in this heritage, storytelling being a large story and song being a large part of it, uh, but not uh, just handing it all over and you go, what else do you work with? And and in uh, mainstream Australia, accessing... uh, its indigenous heritages, not forgetting that there's people in that mix as well that have been damaged. It's a fundamental truth. Any statistical data shows you that have to be in the mix of all this. They have to be part of a better nation as well. And then there is this curious, that I see in little bits and I don't know how it translates to the grand picture, the paradox of empowerment through giving the storying business, the offering of stories and shaped spirit or whatever it is that's going on, and the power that gives, like in the the, the massacre yarn. And another stage of this that story project, this story project, we hand out draft copies of these stories... Picture books, and the idea was to hand them to more members of that home indigenous community, about 100 we normally hand out. And one of the elders, some of the elders in the little group that I rely upon, said, uh, wanted me to give one of these picture books to this old farmer, not the one that I was talking of previously, but similar generation, and a descendant of the land thieves. And I said to these, this, you know, what do you want to do that for? That's the mob that stole our country and you worked like a slave on their property. They didn't even pay you pr- when you were young. And they said, oh, no, look, he speaks a bit of Noongar language as well, Kim. And we knew him when he was a child. So let's give him one. And I think for this old fella to come out in front of all these Noongars and be given this little package of storybooks... And then, and to be honoured like that, it wasn't my idea. I repeat that. But it, he went when he was going back to his um, seat. He had tears in his eyes, and later he did sing this song that he remembered this, this in Nungar language. So those little moments, there's something really um, interesting.
3: Well, it's a kind of healing on. process, isn't it? It's a kind of way I th- of.
2: I think it is healing. Yeah, and there's a lot going on in pockets around Australia and in Indigenous communities about the importance of healing through reconnecting with that classical tradition. And I say classical rather than traditional to move it out of the anthropological
3: sure.
2: mix.
0: We better end there.
3: Thanks. Thanks. So Thank, you, Thank you so much.
0: We would like to say thank you to these people who support us via Patreon. And they are Liam Dutton, Doug Cooley, Alex Hedge, Ian Innes, Danny Amy, Louis E. Just an E. Just an E, brilliant.
3: E for enigmatic.
0: And Samuel Fidion, which is an excellent name. Mm. And the Box of Books winner is Deborah McPherson.
3: Great job, Deborah.
0: Congratulations, Deborah. Drop us an email to
1: contact at cosmicshambles.com and we will get your prize out to you. And as always, if you are enjoying the show and would like to support the show and like us to keep making it, you can become a supporter of the show at patreon.com slash bookshambles it's just as little as a dollar an episode or three dollars a month because we'll only ever charge you for a maximum of three episodes per month and with that you'll obviously help us keep making the show and you'll get extended episodes, you'll get bonus episodes chance to win a box of books, all sorts of other stuff as well Uh, or you can just go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a five star
0: rating that really helps us out as well for all the reading lists of every guest that we've had and also for some of the kind of specials we've done as well you just need to go to cosmic com slash book shambles
3: so there's going to be uh if you enjoy the podcast and you've never seen uh one of robin's kind of celebratory shows before i would really really recommend it this christmas or around this christmas Uh, there's going to be a new Nine Lessons and Carols, which is a kind of non-religious, but non-exclusive celebration of life and the world and finding things out and participating. It's presented by the Cosmic Shambles Network, and the tickets are on sale now, and it's December 16th, 19th, 20th and 22nd at the Conway Hall in London, which is a beautiful relic of a bygone intellectual past. This podcast
0: is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.